For some of you, it's your first time. For others, it is not. But for today, I would like to welcome you all to Epic Realms. and enemies, heroes and villains, welcome to Epic Realms. Our guest today has over 20 novels, including D&D, Pathfinder, Tales books. His recent works included the Axiom Space Opera Trilogy, as well as Doors of Sleep and Prison of Sleep. Please welcome award-winning author Tim Pratt to Epic Realms. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate you being here. I, I can't wait to talk about some of your books but I would also like to ask you first about your work with Locus. Uh, we were just talking sure. about it a little bit before we got started. Um, would you tell the listeners what that is and kind of what your, what your role is over there? Absolutely. So Locus Magazine is a trade uh, magazine for science fiction fantasy publishing. Uh, we're sort of the publisher's weekly of science fiction, except we're monthly. Uh, we publish a ton of reviews. We do the most in-depth reviews of science fiction and fantasy that anyone in the business does. We also interview usually two authors, sometimes only one, but usually two authors every month. And we do wonderful in-depth interviews, not unlike this one. Um, I write the obituaries, um, which is the closest thing in my life to a sacred trust. It's the last time to sort of send somebody off. You talk to their loved ones, you know, and you want to, to uh, sum up their life in a way that does credit to whatever they contributed to the field. Um, so that's a really meaningful part of my job. My job title is senior editor. It's been my job title for a while. I don't really want to go anywhere else above that. Anything more complicated than that? Am I managing people? I don't really want to manage people. So I split my time between editorial and production. I do a lot of the writing and, you know, um, I help edit the reviews. Every once in a while, I conduct an interview if it's somebody that I know. Um, but I do some interview editing and I do a lot of the layout, like the physical putting together of the magazine. Well, not that physical. It's desktop publishing. Yeah. And, um, and along with our design editor, Francesca Maiman, I do the digital fulfillment, right? So it's kind of cool because I got to learn a lot of the practical aspects of the bookmaking art. And I've been doing graphic design production stuff since I got out of college. So that was actually probably why they hired me in the first place. They don't let you touch a typewriter. They don't let you touch a keyboard uh, for a couple of years oh. after you join Locus, right? Like you have to learn how to, how to write that way. But I've been there for 21 years now and it's, it's a huge part of my life. It's given me tons of opportunities. Um, I've met so many people and I just love working. It's a small team and we're a nonprofit. We're just in it for the love of the field. Yeah. Did you have to do any, did you do any writing or authoring before getting in there? Or was it kind of like they both progressed around at the same time? So I was an aspiring writer. Uh, I, so the way I got the job truthfully is I went to the Clarion Writers Workshop in 1999. And uh, then um, in 2000, I moved to California. And in 2001, I moved up to Oakland and I was looking for a job. I didn't have a job. I moved uh, to be with my then girlfriend, now my wife, Heather Shaw. Uh, moved up to stay with her in Oakland. 
and I saw that Lucas was hiring. So I applied and it turned out that one of my clarion instructors, Michaela Rosner, who has a good friend of mine, she's a wonderful writer, fabulous person, happened to be great friends with the founder of Lucas, Charles Brown. So he saw that I went to clarion and called her up and asked, you know, should I hire this kid? And she said, sure. And so I got up <laughs> shortest interview of my life because the first thing Charles said to me was well if you want the job you have it here's what the job is and the job at the time for a new person for an editorial assistant was a lot of um driving my boss around on his errands and cleaning out the gutters of the house oh, uh, stuff like that. yeah so um yeah um and then I was as I said an aspiring writer I'd gone to Clarion I'd published some small press stories stuff like that I was I had written novels. I didn't have an agent yet. And I did. I met my agent. You know, my boss introduced me to actually my agent's boss. Okay. <laughs> Ginger Clark at the time was a junior agent at an agency um, and uh, introduced me to Ginger's boss. And she said, well, I'm not taking new clients, but my assistant is great. And she's taking clients. Okay. And Ginger and I really clicked. She's been my agent, you know, going on 20 years now, too. That's awesome. So that really, that job really did kind of open the gateway for everything. In terms of meeting people, making connections, you can hardly do better. You know, when I when the time came for me to edit anthologies, right, stuff like that. Anytime um, I edited a zine, a little micro press zine, co-edited it for years. Having those connections, having met all those writers, you know, having created some goodwill with them, knowing that I'm the person who's okay to talk to, that I'm trustworthy, that's all been super helpful. So you mentioned Clarion, and yeah. can you explain how important that is? in the world of writing and how, how much weight that holds for people in your field? I mean, I would say it's not necessary, but it can be super helpful. Um, mm -hmm. I know people who've, I know people who went and found it transformative, you know, and it like changed their whole careers. I know people who went and decided this sucks. Writing is not for me. Um, and I know people who went and had, you know, not great experiences for whatever reason, right? So it's a very personal thing. Right. I think it depends on where you are in your journey, depends on who else is in your class, who your instructors are, right? For me, it was great. I had wonderful instructors. I met people, you know, dear friends, um, people I'm still close to. Jen Reese still publishes a lot. Tobias Buckel was a classmate of mine. Um, and uh, people, you know, who, are, who I still, still talk to. And I had great instructors, Kieran Joy Fowler, Tim Powers, Mikey Rosemary, as I said. James Morrow was super supportive of my work early on, which was great. He was one of my instructors. Scott Edelman, who at the time was editing Science Fiction Age. Scott is a sweetheart. Um, Mike Resnick was one of my instructors. Now I have to name everybody because if I leave somebody out. <laughs> well, like uh, Judith Tarr, she, Judith, uh, Judith was great. So for me, it was a fabulous experience. Um, some people like think that Clarion teaches sort of a samey style, right? Like there's a worry that if you're in a workshop, um, and you have 18 people telling you what's wrong with your story, that it pushes you to play it safe, right? And that maybe you're not gonna push out as much. That may happen sometimes. It didn't happen in my year. Uh, we were really encouraged to experiment. And I, there were so many different, like there are not two more different writers than Tim Powers and Karen Fowler, right? Or Tim Powers and Mike Resnick, right? Like really different just approaches to every aspect of the craft and the business right. and so what i took away from clarion is there's not a right way there's not a wrong way but here's a bunch of things you can try so what i often say is that i would have gotten where i am eventually even without clarion but clarion knocked a couple years off the process right yeah. like in those six weeks i learned a lot um that allowed me to that i would have gotten to probably through trial and error but it let me skip a lot of the error yeah well and i got you in that that 
They got me my job. Yeah, right? you your job. <laughs> best, day job. Best day job I could ask for as a writer. My my plan with my life was to work crappy jobs, right? Like work in offices or like retail, whatever, and then write on the side. Yeah. And then I sort of accidentally ended up getting this job in a field that I love. Um, and also a job that's super supportive of my writing career, you know, because my boss, Liza Trombi, who's the, took over the magazine after Charles died, you know, Liza understands that writing is a huge part of my life, a big part of my career. So very flexible if I want to go to conventions, if I need to go to retreats, workshops, I need to take time off because I'm up against a deadline and I didn't time manage well, you know, they're always super supportive of that stuff. That's awesome. That is definitely yeah. awesome. Do you find yourself coming across this issue of you know, you have your job there. And then when you're writing, is it a sh shift of gears to do what you do there to like, you know, when you go to write a novel uh, or is it not shifting the gears because they are so similar? I had some concern truthfully when I started doing more writing for Locus, writing more news that I would get burned out. Um, that writing 10,000 words of news a month would sort of sap my energy for writing fiction. But yeah. I find that like different sections of my brain, you know, the, I hesitate to say I'm a journalist that, you know, we don't do a lot of like investigative work, but, you know, we make calls, we talk to people, people tell us about stuff. We do follow yeah. up, you know, we report on conventions, stuff like that. Um, it is, it is journalism, even if I'm not a hard hitting uh, news person. Um, but that part of my brain seems really separate from the let's make stuff up and imagine people who don't exist part of my brain. Um, they silo pretty well. And, and Locus taught me great time discipline, taught me how to hit deadlines, right? We're a monthly magazine. We have stuff that happens every month. We have deadlines. If we don't get, right? So it really helped me. You know, I was 24, 23 when I started at Locus. So it was really valuable for me to develop those skills and they were very transferable to my uh, fiction writing career. That's great. Do you find you learned a lot as far as your process goes? Do you sit down like, maybe you were writing an outline one way and then you ended up not doing it that way and doing it another way. Did you change and develop because of that? So the thing I would say that has influenced that is that, as I mentioned, we interview a couple of different authors every month. Mm -hmm. And after 20 years, you know, 24 authors a year, that's a lot of authors who I have read transcripts and talked to about what their processes are. Mm -hmm. And so occasionally somebody will suggest something that I think, oh, that's worth trying or, oh, that's an interesting resource or, oh, that's a book on writing or whatever that I wasn't aware of. Um, so it's given me exposure to a whole lot of different approaches to life. And what I, well, life and writing, what I always say about process is the process that works is the process that produces work, right? Have, so many authors are different. You know, I have over the years refined my own process to something that is pretty stable, pretty predictable, pretty reliable, doesn't burn me out, gets the work done in time that is enjoyable, right? So that right. it doesn't feel like a slog when I sit down and I have to work on my book because I still want to feel that joy that comes from creation. And if you mess up your time management, if you get under the deadlines, if you're feeling really pushed and a lot of pressure and anxiety, it stops being fun. And I feel like that is noticeable to the reader, right? If it's a slog for me, I'm afraid that no matter how skillfully I might try to edit, some of that sense that it was a slog or that it was written in desperation or in haste is going to right. come across. So switching gears, because that is great. You're an award-winning author. You say that. It's got on your website. You, What is it like, for instance, the Hugo Award? You won it for Impossible Dreams, right? What was it like for you to get that award? Like, did you get that and you're like, oh, my God? Or did you kind of know that that was in the works? How, how did that process I did happen? Know. I did not know. I was up against Neil Gaiman in that category. There was no way I was going to win that Hugo. 
man, I, I almost didn't send a speech. I couldn't go. The convention that year was in Japan and my wife was quite pregnant at the time and could not travel. And I also didn't want to be in Japan in case something happened. Right. right. Yeah. She was, she was seven months along or something, which was a little late for international travel. Um, so I didn't go. And I sent a, sent a speech with my friend Paul Melko, who got to deliver the speech and carry the Hugo around after that, that night. Um, what it did was allow me to relax a little bit. Um, a lot of being a writer is dealing with imposter syndrome because it's this really weird disconnect in your brain, right? You have to feel confident enough in your work that you believe thousands of people will want to read it. Yeah. But you also have to deal with the fact that you send it out and it gets rejected, or sometimes it gets published and nobody buys it, or sometimes it gets published and nobody comments on it. There's times you're like, even a bad review, just to know someone read it, right? Especially early in your career when you're first starting to publish in the magazines. So when I got you know that award and I got some other some attention and validation, it just allows you to relax a little. Like okay, at least some of the time I'm doing this right, right? I'm hitting it. I can trust myself. I can trust the process. And I used to really be like, oh my god, will I be nominated for anything? Will I get an award? And uh, I'm less like that now, partly because I I have some of that validation. I feel okay about it. And um, I actually really like it when people who are earlier in their careers get, get awards because I know what a boost it was for me, as I say, psychologically, but also professionally. Yeah. Once you've gotten a Hugo for a short story, I've sold every short story I've written since then. I, I think they were all worth selling, but certainly I think some of them would have sat or would have taken a lot longer before yeah. they sold. People just give you a little bit more credit. You get a little bit more of a chance. I don't think any editors were publishing me because, oh, he, he won a Hugo. Lots of people won Hugos. But I think it if you maybe start with a story that does not immediately catch fire or if you're doing something weird, you know, or you're doing something kind of experimental or strange, they give you a couple more pages to grab them, right? Because they have some faith in you, some trust. Yeah. And that, that happens for any established writer, whether they've gotten awards or not, right? The audience learns, okay, they give you some credit. So you get to take more chances. That's been great. But I love it when, you know, whenever the Hugos come out, uh, the time to nominate for Hugos comes out when I'm on social media, I'm recommending writers and books who are newer or people who haven't won awards, either people who are have not been in the field long or who I feel have been overlooked because I want them to have that same boost. I want them to get that. That's awesome. And that shows, that shows uh, the kind of character that you as a, as a person have. And that's I'm wonderful. Yes. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it's easy to say, no, no, don't give me, I, I haven't been nominated for a Hugo since that one I won, but you know, it, it is fine with me. Yeah. No, it's easy what, to say, oh, awards don't matter. I never want to say that, right? I, the right. times I've seen that, people will say, it's easy for you to say, you got yours. Right? Yeah. So I will say they can matter. They can make a big difference. Give them to the people who don't have them yet. Right, for sure. You have you have a long list of books, and they vary by genre. You've got yes. science fiction, fantasy, urban fantasy. Is there a big uh, uh, a shift for you? from switching from topic to topic or is it just like it's all writing so i grew up reading science fiction fantasy and horror pretty widely um mostly the influence of my family you know my mom and dad were big horror fans my great-grandmother was a science fiction a class like a heinlein clark asimov science fiction fan um and i myself really liked fantasy and liked urban fantasy uh, my parents liked stephen king and i mean a lot of stephen king despite it being horrific has a lot in common with stuff like Jonathan Carroll, Charles Lent, right? It's about intrusions of magical things into yeah. mundane reality. I love that stuff. The 
the contemporary fantasy, urban fantasy kind of stuff is what I naturally gravitated toward. And that's what I did a lot of early on in my career. I did this long series, the Marla Mason series, had 10 books in it, more than that, counting like a prequel and a story collection. Um, and it's not as if I felt like I had said everything that I had to say in that, but I was very aware that that was what I was known for. That's what I was doing. And I was like, you know, I love space opera. I love science fiction. Maybe I should try something like that, right? Maybe I should get out of my comfort zone and do something new. So I pitched the Axiom series that started with The Long Stars. And uh, I was a little worried because I love science. Um, I, you know, I love astronomy. I love physics. I love weird stuff. Uh, right. biological sciences but you know the math starts to get a little too complex and, I, and I'm stuck so I was a little worried that I would find it too intimidating to write science fiction but what I told myself finally is there's a there's a range of science fiction that has really hard SF at one end and has Star Wars at the other end right yeah where it's fine you do you know hyperdrive and you artificial gravity and it's never explained right it's fine so I'm like okay I'll stake out a spot maybe a little more sciencey than that right but not so hard science that I'm going to freak myself out about getting the orbital mechanics right. And when you got to do orbital mechanics, you know, the internet's here now. Right. And I know, right? I know physicists, right? I can ask people, I can plug stuff into a website, I can see how long would it take to do X. And in that series, I very quickly got to impossibly advanced alien technology that might as well be magic, no one understands how it works. And then I was able to breathe a sigh of relief, I could kind of do whatever. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was, I was a little bit worried that it wasn't going to work. You know, that people would say, what, Tim Pratt doesn't write this stuff. Yeah. Right? I was going to get laughed out of the room, but the series did super well. It's been one of my most successful uh, things that I've done as a writer. I discovered people really love a book with a spaceship on a cover. You can put a spaceship on a cover. This is my advice to aspiring writers out there. Write a book that they can plausibly put a spaceship on the cover for. <laughs> it helps. It's a big help. <laughs> That's awesome. Do you have a hand in, in who does your covers at all? Or is it just like the publisher is like, this is the artist that we're going with? It depends on on the publisher. I've had small presses where they asked me if there were people that I liked. Um, I did a novella um, called The Deep Woods with PS Publishing. And they were like, is there a cover artist you like? And I said, I love Galen Dara. Galen Dara did the cover. You can see the weird house back here on my wall. Yeah. Did the cover of my book, Heirs of Grace. It's one of my favorite covers. And Galen's just a wonderful person. They were like, great, we'll hire Galen Dara. And Galen wrote me and said, they want me to do this cover. And it's a small press. And uh, for you, I'll do it right because you know because we were friends at that point um because she'd done that other cover for me sometimes with the big publishers they send you something and they say this is it sometimes they send you some options and say what do you think um the ones that i like is where they ask me for my input and then ignore it because i'm not a cover designer right <laughs> i don't know like i in theory they know better than i do about what sells they right. know better than i do Right. I have played art director because I've done some self-publishing stuff. But even then, I tend to find an artist whose work I like and say, go to it. Right. Yeah. And a lot of the covers for stuff that I've self-published, um, I hired Jen Reese, actually, who I went to Clarion with, who's a fantastic middle grade author. She's also a cover designer. Um, she has a, her own little business that she does cover designs for. And she's done a bunch of my books much better than I could do. And even with her, I'll be like, I had this thought, I had this thought. And she'll be like, well, I don't know that that'll work. And maybe not this. How about this? Right. And her ideas are always better than mine. All you have to do is have an idea that's better than mine. It's a low bar. That's, that seems like an ongoing theme. A lot of a lot of authors or comic book writers or whatnot will say, you know, when they're talking about their their artists or their covers, it's like this is you give them a general idea and they're an artist. 
and they will blow you out of the water with what you can imagine with what they can do and it's and you know it's it's an ongoing theme and that's super cool to hear you know across the board pretty much yeah no trust the people that you work with find people who do excellent work that resonates with you and then trust them do you have a cover that really stands out to you as like oh my god this is super cool um I, for my Marla Mesa, I mean, there's so many. I've honestly had really good cover karma. There aren't many that right. are terrible. But Daniel Dos Santos did the first four covers for my Marla Mason series. Okay. And they are so cool. Like, um, there's the one that's for Blood Engines, the first in the series, the cloaked yeah, figure the cloaked, up there. Cloaked hidden. That. Um, there's one for um, a book that I did called Poison Sleep, where Dan did just this amazing cover. Uh, I was so, imp- I so loved his work. I actually put him. I named a character after him. There's a gangster in the series named Danny Two Saints who gets horrifically murdered in one <laughs> of the books as a little homage to Dan. Um, but yeah, honestly, like I have a ton of them. I have a ton of my cover art framed on the walls in my house because so many of them are great. The Forgotten Realms cover Ray Swanland did for my book Venom in Your Veins. Yeah. It's amazing. It's so good. It's, you know, it's about a, a wanti, a snake woman who's an archer. And like, there's just this very subtle sort of snaky detail in it. Yeah, I could go on and on. I've had really good luck with cover art. Well, there are so many people with that book in particular that have gone on and basically in role-playing have made characters like that, Yon T. Archers. Yeah. Like, that's 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 a thing that people follow to this day, uh, whether they're making good guys or bad guys. And that's it's to know that you've had an effect on the gaming industry because of a story you've written, uh, I, th- I think is pretty cool. I don't, yeah, I don't know about you as the author. <laughs> Yeah, there was for um for Pathfinder Tales, I um I did one that involved the Technic League, which is, you know, these horrible, awful technomancers. And I created this woman, this leader of the Technic League, who they like so much that they put her in, you know, the in source material, right? They put her in a in a, a adventure module, whatever they call them in Pathfinder. Yeah. yeah. But um they put her in one and um so that was super cool. And uh, I told them I had these little these little cybernetic spider murder balls in that book and i was like you got to make plush murder balls this is a merch opportunity that you're missing out on but nobody, nobody listens to me so what are you gonna do right well let's talk about pathfinder tales because i've told our audience multiple times that <laughs> some of my favorite pathfinder tales are your books the ones with aleron the ones with roderick and Rim. Uh, i am yeah. an old like i'm a fan of the kind of the anti-hero or the roguish type characters yeah. and you know with and obviously you you had short stories where they met each other so which was, was another fun. which was another level as far as storytelling as far as i was concerned when it comes to books like that uh what what was your inspiration for roderick and Hrim? because that's not something you necessarily see in a lot of you know rpg fantasies is you know a a character like that is really cool but then to have this intelligent weapon as a character well there's this part um so Fritz Leiber, Fofford, and the Grey Mauser, right? Great sword and sorcery duo. There's a part where they are described as like two halves of a sundered whole, right? Like they're both deeply messed up people, but together they form a whole functioning person. And I've always loved that dynamic. Um, I've also always loved talking swords, right? Well, and I love, you know, Stormbringer, right? Like swords that are evil. And I was like, what if I had a guy with a magical sword? Let's sort of think of the Stormbringer kind of thing. But the sword was his other half, right? Was the other half of his, his sundered soul. And what if instead of being you know, a monstrous soul devouring demonic entity. What if the sword was just a crotchety old man? Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. In unspeakably powerful, imbued with the soul of a great white dragon 
and all the powers thereof, an artifact. All he wants to do is lay around on piles of gold because he's a dragon at heart. Yeah. Yeah. All he wants. But so he'll go help Roderick do his scams so that he can acquire a pile of gold to sleep on. That's all he wants. But there's, they just, they are best friends. It's them against the world, right? Prim does not care again about anything except laying on a pile of gold. Roderick, essentially a sociopath, right? Like, <laughs> will lie, right? I originally wanted to call the book Bastard, comma, Sword, right? And they were like, well, we can't, let, maybe not. The booksellers might not like it. They let me do a story called Bastard, comma, Sword for yeah. uh, Roderick and Rim later. But um, there's a part in one of the books where, um, where Roderick says, there's a circle around us, right? It's you and me, there's a circle around us. Everything else in the world is outside that circle. Yeah. What I care about is what's inside the circle. And it's a moment of sort of sentimentality and humanity that you don't normally see a lot of from Roderick because he is kind of a classic wisecracking, it's all on the surface sort of road, right? Yeah. If he ever introspected for more than five minutes, the abyss, the chasm of ice you would see in there would be too terrifying to contemplate. So he just breezes along. Um, but that connection that these two broken people who cannot connect to other people find in each other, just this kindred spirit, right? I just love that. And I'm so thrilled I got to do three books. The, the truth is I wrote four books. The fourth book, they canceled the line. It's sitting yeah. on a shelf somewhere. That's, uh, yeah. you, you, you aren't the only one? Yeah, oh no, uh, I, know. I, I know. Yeah, not at all. Yeah, I was talking to, I did a, a novella for Starfinder. So I was talking to the guy who runs the fiction line over there now, and I was like, it would be great if those could ever come out. He's like, I know, I know. It's just yeah. Yeah. one of those things. When you're coming up with those characters, did you, because Alaron is a completely different animal, uh, you know, because he's very calculating and smart and almost, almost separate. Like he doesn't necessarily understand emotions as much because he's so calculating and understanding and so hyper-focused. How was that going from one character to the other and having them kind of in the same world? Was there a comparison for you when you're putting together these characters? Yeah, well, Alaron's fun because he is ambition without empathy, really. Um, and this kind of makes him vulnerable to manipulation and stuff because he's he tries to be really logical. Nobody's purely logical. He tries to be really logical and he sort of assumes that other people are also acting out of logic, right? Um, but people act out of all kinds of impulses, right? So this gets him in trouble. This causes issues for him. Um, he's just, you know, a character who is a an endless seeker after knowledge, regardless of consequences, is a fun character to write because yeah. they're going to run into danger, right? They're going to do, they're going, you, you don't want to write an idiot plot where it only makes sense because your character is stupid. Aleron's not stupid, but he's so focused on the stuff he wants to do that he does stupid things. Yeah. Um, so it was a way I could have stuff happen while without feeling like I was um, not playing fair with the characters. Yeah. And the key for me, again, that's a, that series is also about the relationship. It's Aleron and Skyver, right? He, he gets joined up with this guy who is who's just who's a killer, who's a criminal, who's sort of not a crime boss, but a crime boss's lieutenant. But he, he has his own way that he wants to do things. He has his own desires and ambitions too. And right. he sees Aleron as sort of a tool to get him the things that he wants, but he also kind of sees him as like a weird pet, right? Or like a really valuable piece of livestock that you have to keep from wandering into the road, right? <laughs> um, and they do, I mean, they develop a real friendship and they start to count on each other, but that, that dynamic between them was what made those books super fun for me yeah. to write. Do you have a process when you're coming up with these other characters, whether it's Skaver or whether it's the uh, uh, some of the characters? I can't remember the ones in the other in the other book. I, I can, but I don't remember their names. Uh, uh, 
is there a process you have for coming up with these characters to make them kind of their own thing? Because you could take any one of those characters and go, I want to read a book about that character. Well, yeah. I mean, I try to think of who's going to be Bleach and who's going to be Ammonia so I can mix them together and it'll make clouds of poison gas, right? Like you want to create characters who are going to spark and react strongly to each other, right? Yeah. Um, I did that crossover story with, with Alaron and Roderick. Of course they would hate each other, right? Roderick right. would like, take advantage of, of Elrond and he would he cares nothing about anything that Roderick cares about. He doesn't care about money. He doesn't care about material comfort. None of this is of interest to him. So the fact that they briefly had the same sort of goal and had to work together, I knew that would it would just be so fun to pit them against each other. Yeah. With Liar's Blade, the first one with Roderick and him, uh, James Sutter, who we were talking about earlier, he was my editor on those books. A great guy, great writer, great editor. He said, I, you know, I want you to do, do you think you can do a sort of classic quest-based narrative where like you have an adventuring party and they're going on a quest to like find something accomplish something and i thought about it and i said i can do it as long as everybody in the adventuring party has their own secret agenda and is planning on betraying each other at the first opportunity and james said that's great go for it <laughs> so then i thought about what kind of characters would work with that so i got you know a demon cults as priest i got an aberrant sorcerer i got roderick and Hrim, right i put them together same sort of thing later. And I think my favorite of the series is Liar's Bargain, which is my Suicide Squad book. Yeah, and it's yeah. Explicitly, it's Task Force X, right? Like, um, there's a character named Bannerman, who is my flag character, right? There's a character named, I forget what her name is, Bulwark or something. I have my Amanda Waller character, right? Um, and again, I got, to, what kind of team can I put together who's going to be nitpicking at each other, pushing each other's buttons, bothering the crap out of each other? It just makes the writing more lively it makes the scene sort of write themselves right you give these characters a problem to solve they all have their own idea about the best way to solve it and you just get so much drama and humor and action from that yeah for sure that's awesome uh you have all kinds of, i could sit here and talk about your the pathfinder tales books all night but you have some amazing other books including another book that's uh and i gotta ask you and it's a series uh and you just had a new one come out called twilight imperium yeah is that is the game come first or did the book come first? Tell us about the uh, the connection between those two. Because I see it's so, got the same logo, so I'm assuming they're related. <laughs> they are. So um, I had this space opera trilogy, the Axiom trilogy, uh, started with the wrong stars. My editor on that was this guy, Mark Gascoigne. I've known Mark for ages. He published me in an anthology, like, I don't even know, 2005 or something, a long time ago. And so I did this space opera series for Mark for Angry Robot. He left Angry Robot. He moved over to Aconite, which publishes um, gaming-related books, right? So right. they do Twilight Imperium, notably. They do Arkham Horror books, right? Stuff like that. Um, when they asked Mark about doing a Twilight Imperium series, what Mark told me is he, he chatted down T-Imp and then looked at it and said, oh, Tim P. Well, sure. I'll call Tim Pratt. Well, because I'd, I'd done space opera for him already. He knew I could write space opera. So he called me up and said, do you want to do Twilight Imperium? I had not played Twilight Imperium. I was aware of it because I play enough games. I know enough gamers. I was like, how do you write a Twilight Imperium novel? It's about the movement of like fleets. It's about the movement of empires. It's this huge right. top-down political economy kind of, and like, that's not what I write. You know, I write grungy stuff about people who are confused in a broken spaceship, right? Like, I can't do that. And, and Mark said, no, that's what they want. What they want is small-scale science fiction about individuals who are in this vast world against these galactic machinations and maybe they don't even understand the part that they're playing right and they only know the little bit that they can see yeah they want to do little stories 
that imply this big universe and they want to jump around and show a lot of parts of it can you come up with stories that do that and i was like sure and so i thought about it and then i wrote up three different pitches um one was a sort of series of heists and chases one was um sort of a spy thriller thing with lots of possibilities of moles right and and uh yeah secret identities and intrigue and one of them was a was a space princess story right uh oh i have a secret destiny right but doing a lot of weird stuff with that and i sent in these pitches i was like let me know if you like any of them and they said we like all of them let's do all three of them <laughs> so fractured void and then the veiled master fractured void necropolis empire and then the veiled master so i said oh great okay i'll write all three and then i said do you want them to be connected at all because they weren't in the pitches right they were each because uh, i thought i was just pitching one book and they said, we would really, we think it would be cool if there was like some connections where like a main character and one pops up as a background character in another one, right? Or if like you mention somebody and then they're important in another yeah. book, like yeah. do that sort of thing. And I said, sure. And what we settled on is there's one character who has a pretty significant role in, in all three books. She's a um, Barony of Letnev, soldier, officer, administrator. Her name is Severin. Um, she starts out as like head of security on a space station through various misadventures ends up having to be like a field operative going out. And um, she's one of those people who can turn every disaster into an opportunity by stabbing the right person in the back. So she kind of rises in uh, throughout the three books, but she's the only one. There are others, like there's some characters from book one who reappear in book three, which has a huge cast um, because that was really the one where I'm like popping around. It's the most widescreen of them. I have a bunch of little scenes from different people, different factions all over the galaxy. So that was super fun. And it was really neat to do a series like that. Like there's, um, in one of the books, there's just a comment about uh, a fake ID that's being used, right? Somebody's identity gets stolen. Yeah. So that criminals can use it as a cover identity, right? Then in another book, I have that poor jerk whose identity got stolen. <laughs> Life has been ruined, right? Like he can't, he, he was like a rich guy and now he's ruined and, you know, he has no credit and nobody trusts him in, in certain parts of the galaxy that are slow to process their paperwork. He's still a wanted fugitive, right? Right. So I got to have a lot of fun with those little cross connections and cameos. But the books do stand alone. I think it's it's more fun because you can see the little Easter eggs if you read them. Yeah. All of them, but each one is its own complete story. And I think Veiled Masters or Veiled... Yeah, Veiled Masters just came out, and I think it's just released to the UK on the 1st of September, right? Yeah, they had a thing where, like, the ebook would come out, and then the paperback would come out, and the paperback would come out elsewhere. It was supply chain stuff, largely. Like, all so many book releases have been bumped around and have been super weird in the past couple years because of supply chain stuff. Yeah. But it's out there. It's out. Yep. Do, you have, uh, do you have those on audiobooks? Do you listen to audiobooks? Um... I do listen to audiobooks. I don't listen to my own audiobooks. Um, the sound of my own words being read back to me fills me with a, a deep and instinctual visceral horror. So I listen enough to be like, oh, this is a good narrator. And sometimes they'll, they'll send me samples depending on the publisher and be like, do you like this narrator, this narrator? Sometimes the narrator will write me and say, how do I pronounce all these weird words you made up or borrowed from other languages? Yeah. And, uh, and I'll communicate with them. Um, so I, I have various degrees of involvement. Um, but the audiobooks are cool, and it's a whole different segment of the audience. You know, it's people who wouldn't necessarily pick it up in a different format. Right. Um, certainly, I know for me, I often have a book going in audio and a book going on my phone and a book that I'm reading in print. You know, I have multiple channels right. uh, feeding into my brain. You had mentioned that sometimes the reader will message you for, you know, mm -hmm. things like that. Was it always like that for you, or is that like a newer, a newer? processes to talk to them um, 
it was it was early on my second novel that ever came out um blood engines the narrator for those books was a was a great narrator named jessica almazy and uh she wrote me and said, how do I pronounce the names of all these Aztec deities that you put in here? And I had to figure out how to pronounce the names of all these Aztec deities that I'd put in there that I only read. You know, I'd read in my research. I didn't know how to pronounce them. So right. unfortunately, the internet exists. So I could go and I could find you know, <laughs> people who spoke the language who could pronounce it for me. So with luck, she pronounced them all right. If she didn't, it's my fault. <laughs> nice. Your other book that just came out too long, not too long ago is also part of the series. Yeah. Uh and I, hopefully I don't butcher this wrong. Zaxony Della Tree? Am yep. I pronouncing that right? Nailed it. Yeah. Well done. Uh, uh, tell us a little bit about that series. Because that, I mean, that also, and again, all these books are just a little little different. Not necessarily always the same contact uh, context yep. or subject matter. Uh, tell us a bit about these. Because these, these really intrigue me. The covers intrigue me as well. Yeah, so the, the pattern that my career has taken is... Um, if I have books that do well at a publisher, I will take this opportunity to then say, you're happy with me, you like me, let me do something really weird. Let me do something really strange that maybe maybe uh, is not a sure thing, right? Let me burn through that goodwill. Yeah. So the, <laughs> the Axiom series did really well. So the next thing I pitched was I wanted to write this multiverse adventure uh, series. It ended up being a duology, partly because I... After, so I, I pitched book one, book one, they liked a lot. I pitched book two, they liked that idea a lot. Book two, the stakes are so incredibly high that I couldn't think where to go from there, right? To do a third book. So I might do a collection of stories about the characters, but this in the second book, Prison of Sleep, literally the fate of the multiverse is at stake. Like not our reality, all realities could be destroyed, right? I, did, I just, well, you don't always have to up the ante in a series, but like, I just... Like, what's not going to seem like sort of a letdown after that? So it's a duology. Yeah. So it's about a guy, Zax, Zaxony, Zach, uh, Delatry, Zax. Every time Zax falls asleep, he wakes up in a different parallel universe. This is a thing that started happening to him when he was in his early 20s. He's not from Earth. He's from his own sort of post-scarcity utopian place called the Realm of Spheres and Harmonies. Uh, Zax wakes up in a different world. And uh, he's there for as long as he can stay awake. And sometimes he wakes up in uninhabited places. Sometimes he wakes up in places full of monsters. Sometimes he wakes up in techno-utopian paradises. Sometimes he wakes up in places where everyone has to work in the cobalt mines for the robot overseers. Like, it's a different world every time. He can take people with him. So if someone falls asleep in his arms, they travel with him, right? If they're both asleep. Um, so he can take people out of horrible situations. So he can have companions. So he's not necessarily horrendously lonely. But if he gets hit on the head and knocked out, he travels without them. He can't go back. He can never go back. It's only forward, oh, right? Man. So I wanted to take a character who, like, his, he's starting over at the bottom of the hierarchy of needs every day, right? Like, he's got his little knapsack that he stuffs food in when he can, but he doesn't speak the language. He doesn't have money. Eventually, in the series, he finds a world that's technologically advanced where he meets a guy who shoves a linguistic virus into his brain so he can learn spoken languages he can't learn to read but he can get spoken languages and that's a huge thing like that allows him to survive and when he otherwise wouldn't be able to survive yeah. but for me i love multiverse books i love parallel universe books and it's not a diss on them it's the nature of the thing but often a parallel universe book you see like one or two other worlds one or two other realities yeah. and it makes sense you want to spend some time you want to play with the differences but what i wanted was just a a ton of different realities right i wanted a new world every five pages you know, I wanted to just 
have it be this flurry of imagination. There's a part at the end of The Talisman by Peter Straub and Stephen King, where the main character is in this horrible house, you know, at the end of the world. And he starts to sort of shuffle through various versions of it, alternate realities of it. And it's one of my favorite parts in any book. It's like every time, it's a snapshot, right. every moment, right? The nature of the reality is changing. And I was like, I wanna write a whole book that's like that. Why can't I, why can't I do that? And, uh, and I did, and some people say, God, I wish I could spend more time in some of those worlds. And, and I get that impulse, but for me, this was about like, let's, let's just have a new world every couple of pages. Let's have a new spectacle. Let's throw something new at this character. Um, what, some of the most fun I've ever had writing, honestly. That's awesome. And that explains the, the you know, the titles obviously are the prison of sleep. Like, well, yeah. <laughs> it kind of, yeah, makes sense. Do you ever think, you said you'll do some short stories and stuff. Do you think that would be like an anthology booklet? Or do you think it'll just be short stories and that'll just be it? Well, so um, I do a Patreon every month. I publish a new short story. I've been doing this for a long time, since 2015. Have not missed a month. There have been some close calls, but I have not missed a month. Um, and I actually started writing about Zach's uh, there in, for, okay. for my Patreon. I did a story called um, Orchard of Worlds, and I did a couple of other ones with Zach's when I was like, I sometimes use the Patreon as a test kitchen, right? Yeah. Like, I have this idea for a character or sort of a speculative thing. I wonder if it'll work, right? And so I'll try it in the story, see if I click with the characters, see if I like the voice, and if I do, then I keep going. And I ended up using some of the material from those stories in Doors of Sleep. I had to change it a lot um, to make the novel work. So they're sort of not, they don't really fit in the in the continuity. They're outside canon or whatever. Right. Um, but bits of their DNA survived into the series. So if, if I did stories, I might do them for the Patreon. And then I might collect a bunch of them into a book. And uh, when I do collections like that, I usually throw in an extra, an original story or two as a treat, right? Give people a reason to actually pick up the book. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And that's uh, your Patreon is patreon.com backslash Tim Pratt if people want to. That's it. People listening want to go and check that out. All kinds of cool stuff over there. You've got, a, you've got a, quite a variety of um, tiers over there, too, for things that people can. Yeah, the main ones that most people do, like you give me a dollar, you can read all the stories. And it's like 80 stories at this point. You get a new story every month. If you give me $5 or more every month, I do something weird. Sometimes it's trunk stories. Sometimes it's outtakes. I put whole novels like juvenilia novels that i wrote when i was 20 that i didn't publish there and there you can read those um audio stuff readings um a short film i made with my kid for a school project like there's all kinds of nice. stuff <laughs> and then there's higher levels that are you know like um we do a chapbook every year my wife and i we missed it missed one in the pandemic year but we do like a holiday chapbook and we send it out we don't send out christmas cards we send out this little chapbook to people so we'll send that to you my very highest, which I only have one person who does, is if I get it, you get it. They get every book. They get every collection, every magazine, anything that I produce that I get a copy, a spare copy of, I just mail it to them. So nice. that's pretty fun. Yeah. That is that is awesome. Next year you've got Conquest of Nice Space. Yeah. Tell us yeah. about it. Tell us about this. And do you know excited. when it, do you know when next year? Is it like next year like January or is it like Whenever. It's not even it's not even turned in until the spring. It's okay. uh, it's I'm still writing it. Okay. Um, well, tell us what you can tell us. I think it'll be out next fall. I think that's what they were planning to do. Schedules that far out, a year out, they can slip around. It's hard to tell. Mm -hmm. I think it's probably out late next year. Um, last I heard, anyway. So I wrote a story called Champion of Nice Space. 
um, which I did for my Patreon, and then it was published on uh, Uncanny Magazine. Published it as a reprint. Uncanny's okay. great; they've been great supporters of my work, and they're also just a great magazine. But a lot of readers loved it, and I loved it. I loved the world. And then I did for Escape Pod. They did an anniversary anthology, and they asked me for a story because I've published a bunch of stuff in Escape Pod over the years. And I was like, I'll write another Nice Face story, so I wrote one called The Princess of Nice Face, and I published those. And I thought when I wrote them, it's another one of those things where I'm like, the main characters of these two stories would hate each other, right? Their goals are like just philosophically so diametrically opposed. It would be really fun to slam them against each other in a novel. <laughs> I just kept thinking about it and thinking about it. And um, the time came to pitch another book to my to my publisher after um, Prisoner of Sleep was accepted. And I was like, if I could like just no thoughts about like what's commercial or what's a good idea for my career, like what would be the most fun? Like, yeah. if I could do anything, what would I do? And I was talking it over with my friend, Sarah Day, who I also collaborate on short stories with. I was talking to her about it, and I was like, I just, I love these nice space books. I think it would be so fun in Gonzo, because it's space opera, it's multiverse stuff, you know, it's weird, messed up character dynamics. It's everything, right? It's chocolate and peanut butter and uh, and Irish whiskey. It's just all mixed together, right? right. So nice space is a, is a multiverse. It's not as sprawling as the one in Doors of Sleep. Um, they sort of envision it as a, as a ream of paper, right? So each sheet of paper is a different world. Some people have technology that allows them to access it. The ones that are most adjacent to you are pretty similar to your world, right? They might be a little more technologically advanced. They might be a little bit less. The farther out you go, the more bizarre and outre they get. And after a few hundred worlds in either direction, kind of up or down this, this pile, they eventually get so weird you can't get to them anymore. Or the people who go there never come back, right? Either... Wow. They're just inimical to your form of life or there's something so awful there that it's going to get you. And there's a lot of stuff you can do in a setting like that. Yeah. And so there are ones that are spaceship, space battle, high, highly advanced ones. And there are ones that are our world except horrible cybernetic oligarchs, right? <laughs> and the main character of, one of the main characters of Champion of Night Space is a woman who works for a group that believes in fighting against the oligarchies. Like a lot of what happens in Night Space is people will have access to an adjacent level, right? And they will use the differentials in technology to oppress or to enrich themselves, right? Like say you can nip into the universe next door, get their better tech, pop home to your world, sell it and make yourself a billionaire, right? Or you can take your better technology into a slightly less advanced world and just conquer it, take them over, right? Basically, it's capitalism, right? This is what happens anyway. <laughs> this is what happens in our world, right? You can you can leverage these inequalities. So it's about doing that on a sort of cosmic level, a multiversal level. Right. So Deacon of Nice Space is about a woman who works for a group that tries to stop these awful people. And Princess of Nice Space is about a woman who discovers she's not native to her the world she thought was her home, that in fact she's in exile. Her family barely escaped from a purge in an adjacent world where they were oligarchs. And they had all this tech and she decides she wants to get her birthright back. She wants to go back over there and become the princess of nice space that she knows she should be. Um, and those are the two stories and they, they would hate each other. So I'm going to make them fight. It's going to be great. Nice. That's awesome. <laughs> I, and I'm excited that you get to do something that you're so excited about. Cause sometimes, you know, it's like you get, this is the book, do this book. Okay. I'll, I'll do that book. Cause that's what I'm told, but to go, I really want to do this. Can I do this? And they go, yes. Uh, and I you have can tell. Been... Yeah, so work for hire, like I've actually been lucky. I've had a lot of flexibility with the tie and stuff. Quite often it'll be pitch us your ideas. What do you want to do the most? Um, sometimes it's a little bit more schematic. But even, you know, in those cases, I'm like, I'm a professional. If I made chairs for a living and someone said I want this kind of chair, I'd make them that kind of chair, right? But on my own time, I'd make weird chairs. Yeah. 
So I always alternated, you know, I would do, if I did a work for hire book, I always did a passion project too. Even if it was with a small press, it was self-published. Um, it was always important to me to keep my weirdness going. Yeah. All right. Uh, you're going to be doing an event in November. I believe it's November 3rd is the World Fantasy Convention. I will uh, be wandering around World Fantasy. It's in New Orleans this year. I don't know if I'm doing any programming or doing a reading or anything yet. Um, possibly not. World Fantasy has a high percentage of really awesome people at it. So right. I have been at them and done events, and I've been at them and not done programming. But I'll be in the bar. I'll be yeah. around. Well, it's great uh, when I, you get to go to something that you are, you know, are a fan of, whether you're interacting there as a as okay. a official guest or whether you're just going as a person oh it's a great con i do have something sooner coming up yeah, um, yeah on saturday. saturday i'm doing an event um it's a wonderful reading series called writers with drinks in san francisco the okay. charlie jane anders fabulous author and great person charlie jane anders has been running for over 20 years i read there back in 2001 um and this is the last one it's going on hiatus you know oh, charlie's wow. been for decades and has taken a break and it's going to be uh, at the makeout room i think in san francisco uh probably, probably people should look on the website and make sure but um uh it's a lineup of i think it's four different readers and charlie always curates just wildly different readers you okay. know it's not just science fiction people right yeah there'll be comedians erotica writers nonfiction writers memoirists mystery writers like all kinds of different writers read it writers with drinks it's always a great show it's a great crowd um super excited to be back i haven't read there since i think 2006 well, so to exciting. get to come back and get to come back for the last one at least for the foreseeable future super cool do you do anything on your, say, your Patreon or on your website where people you can get autographed books or anything like that? Or do you do signings, stuff like that? That's a great idea. No, no. I um, I sign uh, I sign stock when I go to bookstores. Uh, <laughs> occasionally, I'll sell, occasionally I'll do a little sale and sell contributor copies and sign them. But that's, uh, that's a good idea. I should think about that. Okay, cool, cool. Tell us about your upcoming work with uh, Arkham Horror. Yeah, so I probably can't say too much yet. We just signed the contract for it. So I'd actually um, really wanted to write an Arkham Horror book when I first was talking to the people at Aconite before I did Twilight Imperium. We were talking about all the different properties they had. It's like, I would love to write an Arkham Horror book because I, I play Arkham Horror. I, you know, Lovecraft was an early influence. Bigger fan, truthfully, of people like um, uh, Victor Lavelle and people like Ruth Ann Emerus. Um, who've taken that Lovecraftian material and reworked it for a modern audience and made it, you know, less racist and stuff um, and wrestled with a lot of it. And the stuff that really appeals to me about Lovecraft is that the, that sense of like vast cosmic things that are happening, the insignificance of humanity and like how to make a meaningful life for yourself in the face of such a uh, universe, right. right? That stuff is fascinating to me. Also, I like tentacles, you know? <laughs> so really wanted to do Arkham Horror and they sort of said, well, everybody wants to do Arkham Horror. Like we have a ton of people who want to write Arkham Horror books, so maybe. And so I, I did three other books for them and then I was like, Arkham Horror? And they were like, yes, you can pitch some Arkham Horror ideas to us. So I pitched a couple of ideas and, um, you know, I had written up this whole one and like pitched it to them and we went back and forth and it looked like it was maybe gonna happen. And they were like, actually, we did, you know, we had some concerns about this part and this part. There's a lot of cannibalism and drug use. I'm like, okay, that's fine. That's, that's, that's fair. That's fair. Um, but then my editor said to me, if you want, you can make up your own great old one. Like you can create your own cosmic entity. Right. And I was like, no way, really? And so the next day I was actually on a, on a train ride up the coast um, here in, in California. 
and I was looking out the window at the ocean and just thinking about Lovecraft and how he was scared of the ocean and thinking about all the really wild stuff about oceanography and all the stuff that is still being discovered, right? Like how on our planet, there's a place that it is, is as mysterious to us as distant galaxies, yeah. right? But we know there's a live stuff down there, right? And so I just really started thinking about aquatic stuff. And I came up on the train ride with this entire pitch, this whole idea for this cosmic entity, for the cult that supports it, for all the weird stuff I would have, for the pulp adventure of the plot, for the investigators from Arkham Horror who would perfectly fit in to this story, right? And I pitched it and they loved it. They wrote me back and um, the game developers told me that it was one of the coolest ideas for, uh, for a new monster, for a new creature that, uh, that they had been pitched. Um, so they were super enthusiastic and, uh, and that's, a, that's a work in progress. Actually, that's what I was working on this weekend um, nice. and it's going super well. It's so fun. It's so cool. Again, I'm not going to give too many details, yeah, but yeah. the ocean. The ocean. And, uh, well, and, maybe and, if you luck out, they'll oh, do an expansion with that as a as a thing that people have to Again, like, I love it. Like with Pathfinder Tales, when some of my stuff ended up in the source material, I'm like, yes, my 14-year-old self would be so proud. Same right. thing, absolutely. If they want to take this stuff and put it on a, on a card in a card game, that would be great. And then you'll get the game and be like, come on, let's fight it, everyone. And they'll be like, no, you came up with it. I don't want to do that. Yeah. I don't want to fight it. <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't want to fight it. Mm -mm. Awesome. <laughs> You are on Twitter at Tim Pratt, very active there. Uh, you also have an Instagram where you you, you post some fun stuff, and you are uh, at Tim Pratt on Instagram. Uh, again, your Patreon is patreon.com backslash Tim Pratt, and your website timpratt.org. Did I get it all right? That's it. Yes, I'm an org. I love it. Nailed it. Uh, friends and enemies, viewers, listeners, all alike. September 19th, we are going to be joined by actor, narrator, voice actor, Victor Bavine is going to be joining us. He's not only the voice of Alaron in Tim Pratt's series, but he's also the voice of R.A. Salvatore's Driss Doerden. He's also been seen in Star Trek, Law & Order, Guiding Light. He'll be with us September 19th live, uh, and if you listen to the podcast, that'll be on September 20th. October 3rd, legendary game designer and owner of Steve Jackson Games. Steve Jackson is going to be joining us. We're going to talk about game design, new products, as well as old favorites such as Munchkin and GURPS. That's going to be live October 3rd. The podcast will be October 4th. Also down the road, we're going to be having hip-hop singer Nerd D is going to be joining us. Game designer Sig from the brand new Evil Genius Games will be joining us. And of course, Dave Schrader from Discovery's Holzer Files and Ghosts of Devil's Perch is going to be joining us down the road. So be sure to rate and review, listen to all of our past episodes. And for Tim Pratt, I am Nick, and thank you for listening to Epic Rounds. Thanks so much. Well, there you are. I hope you enjoyed yourselves, and I do hope that you come back and join us again for Epic Realms. <laughs> <laughs>